Class time for the two and three-year-olds. There they go. Thanks for leading that song. Thanks for explaining it before we sang it. <laughs> I really like the song, but I, I don't know that I'd encountered it before, so I needed the explanation. I liked it, and I liked its message about his worthiness. There's just nobody like him. And one of the most important things as an element of worship that we do together is hearing him speak, and he speaks through his word. So we invite you this afternoon to open his word to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. When we listen to God's word, he confronts us with truth. His truth. And we need to love his truth. And we need to respond to it in a way that is pleasing to him. As we get near the end of this chapter, the subject becomes love. Somebody has said that love may not make the world go around, but it sure makes the trip worthwhile. And that sort of gathers together most human sentiments that the best of all experiences and the sweetest of all emotions is love. Whatever the era, whatever the age whatever group of people you may consider, it seems to be the rather universal thought that love is the greatest. Love is the sumum bonum. Love is the highest good. Love is par excellence. The songs and the poems, the stories and the books and the films about love would fill volumes and volumes. And the world kind of comes together in a consensus that love is the greatest experience. And at that point, God would agree However, it's quite a different kind of love that God affirms than that this world understands. So this text in Matthew 22 becomes about love, but it's not normal human love. It's a divine kind of love that, Lord willing, we'll get to in the morning. Right now, we need to get the setting before we get into the text. This is Wednesday before the Friday when Jesus is going to be crucified. Jesus has entered the city of Jerusalem, and he's been hailed as the Messiah, the deliverer of the nation from Roman bondage. He's been hailed as the one who would set Israel at liberty. They triumphantly hailed him on Monday. And on Tuesday, he went to the temple com compound. But rather than attacking the Romans as they thought he might, he attacked the Jews instead. And he did it at the very heart of their nation. He attacked their false religious system. He cleansed the temple, threw out the money changers and the merchants who had desecrated God's holy house. And now, after spending the night at Bethany in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom the Lord has raised from the dead, Jesus and his disciples come back to the temple compound on Wednesday. And he's spending the day there teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But alongside these events in the life of the Lord has been the mounting, rising animosity, the hatred and the venom of the Jewish religious leaders. They already deeply resented Jesus Christ. They already wanted him dead, and they were already plotting his murder. They resented him for several reasons. He taught contrary to their teaching, and that irritated them. And he was more popular than they were. He had a bigger following than they did. And that was hard for them to take because their egos really needed to be supreme. 
Also, he demonstrated powers and abilities that they couldn't even conceive of. He gave ocular demonstrations of power that they couldn't begin to compete with. So here was a man who contradicted their teaching, gained a greater hearing than they had, and could do things that they couldn't even imagine doing, and they wanted him dead. He was a threat, a threat to their position, a threat to their popularity, a threat to their doctrine. When he came into the city of Jerusalem and was hailed as Messiah, that just heightened their desire to have him eliminated because now the people were flocking after him more and more. But it wasn't an easy thing to eliminate him. How do you eliminate a man when you don't want to alienate yourself from the entire populace that have gone after him? As long as Jesus had the ear of the people, the Jewish leaders were in a very difficult position. So the also, the Roman government had restricted the Jewish right to execute their own criminals, and so in wanting to take his life, they were really in a difficult position. And in this chapter, they're trying the only thing they can think of to attempt, and that is to publicly discredit Jesus. They try to make him look bad with Rome, and they try to make him look bad with his own people, Israel. In order to do this, they confront him with a series of questions. And these questions are designed to discredit him. They believe he will be forced to answer these questions in a certain way so that he will be put in a difficult position with Rome and with the Jews both. He was bad enough that he taught differently than they did, but it escalated because of his demonstrations of power and the popularity he gained. And then it reached a fiery flame when he cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple at the most lucrative time of year, the Passover, and they made the most money. So they're at a fever pitch in their desire to get rid of him. And as if the cleansing of the temple was not bad enough, in chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 22, he also gave three parables that spoke of the Jewish leader's own exclusion from the kingdom of God. First, he said to those leaders, in effect, you're like sons who say they'll obey, but then they don't. You're like tenant farmers who lease out a farm, and then you kill the servants, and you even kill the son of the one who leased it to you before you'll pay the debt. And you're like guests who are invited to a wedding but refuse to come and therefore are shut out. And in Mark chapter, or in, in a chapter 21, verse 45, in Matthew 21, 45, were explicitly told that they knew he was talking about them. There was no question in their minds. So the escalation of all these things is reaching a flashpoint and climaxing when he cleansed the temple. And then he pronounced these three parables of doom upon these leaders. This has made them angry to a point that's beyond anything that they have experienced heretofore. They're struggling even to control themselves. And they're trying to confront him in a way that will allow them to see his death. So the first question comes in verses 15 through 17. It was the Pharisees who came along with the Herodians. They wanted to ask him a question, the answer to which would bring him into trouble with the Romans. So they asked him whether they should pay taxes to Caesar. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they had, of course, already conceived in their minds that he was probably going to say no, because he was a man of God, he said, and he spoke the word of God, he said, so there's no way he's going to acquiesce to the Roman government. 
They figured, too, that he didn't want to become unpopular with the people who were, for the most part, anti-Rome. So they thought he would say, no, you don't have to pay tribute to Caesar. And then the Herodians could report him as a rebel insurrectionist leader, and the Romans, fearing his popularity, would put him to death. That was the plot. Well, get me to say something insurrectionist and rebellious, and the Romans will kill him before they let him start a revolution. But that failed because his answer confounded them all. When you look at the answers Jesus gave in this chapter and elsewhere, even if you've known these answers all your life, it still just blows you away, doesn't it? What perfect answers. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. Who can argue with that? It's just the perfect answer to that question. So that was a flat failure. And the second question then comes from the Sadducees. They came in verse 23. They want to know his view on the resurrection. If they can't discredit him politically, which they just tried and failed, they're going to try to discredit him as a teacher before the people of Israel. And that'll at least be a step in his elimination. So they talk about the resurrection and they make up an absolutely bizarre hypothetical situation. They assume that if he says there's a resurrection, he's going to be stuck with this strange hypothetical and the people will see what an utterly inept and inadequate teacher he really is. And they will have then discredited him theologically. But again, his answer confounds, his answer astonishes them and everybody else that hears it. And that test fails. Again, the perfect answer. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. You guys do err for two reasons. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. The perfect put down and they have no answer to this. And that brings us to number three. One more time, they come to test him. Verse 35 says, This was their purpose. Their desire was that he would fail the test. First, they tried to test him politically, and then they tried to test him theologically with a major doctrinal issue, and now they're probing in the spiritual dimension again. They've got one more shot to discredit him with the people. This is their last attempt. In the parallel passage in Mark chapter 12, verse 34, it says that, When this was over, no man dared ask him any more questions. So this is it. And the scene is introduced in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. He had silenced them, the Pharisees and the Herodians already. And then he silenced the Sadducees and the Pharisees heard about that. And they gathered together to discuss the situation. When it says that he put the Sadducees to silence, the verb there literally means to gag. It means that he gagged them. It wasn't that they wanted to be silent after that. It was that they had no choice because he gagged them. This is the same verb used in Mark 1.25 of silencing a demon. It's the same verb used in Mark 4.39 of silencing a storm. It's the same verb used in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, of muzzling an ox. It's an unwilling gagging. They would have liked to say more, but they just had nothing more that they could say because he silenced them. 
He brought their argument to such a complete end that they were absolutely without another thought and therefore without another word. He made them look stupid instead of them making him look stupid. So it has backfired on them completely. And when the Pharisees saw this, they knew they better have a meeting. Now, ordinarily, they would have been happy to see their enemies, the Sadducees, gagged. The Sadducees had been plaguing them for years and years about the resurrection, and the Pharisees had never been able to answer like Jesus had in just two lines. Jesus has shut down the whole conversation. The Pharisees had never been able to do that with the Sadducees. So the Pharisees were no doubt glad to see their enemies. The Sadducees had been answered in favor of the Pharisaic view of the resurrection, that is, that there's going to be one. So there may have been a little gloating over the fact that the Sadducees had been put down, but the trouble was that they would have much rather have seen Jesus being discredited because Jesus posed a far greater threat to them than the Sadducees ever did. Seeing their foes inept in destroying the greater enemy Jesus has still left them dissatisfied. So in verse 34, They gathered together, and in this gathering together, we see a tremendous fulfilling of prophecy. Psalm 2 is a messianic prophecy. And in Psalm 2, the psalmist is looking a thousand years ahead to the Messiah. In Psalm 2, verse 2, he says that the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is, his Christ. And that's right here in verse 34 of Matthew 22, when they're gathered together. This is the very thing that was predicted in the second psalm a thousand years before, that the rulers would come together and take counsel together against the Lord. In fact, in Acts 4.26, that verse from Psalm 2 is actually referenced there by the church when the church is praying after the release of Peter and John, and after Peter and John are in trouble again, and the church gets together and prays, The quotation is made there from this passage that the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So Psalm 2 looked forward and said that they would gather together against him. And Acts 4.26 looked backward to the time that they had gathered together against him. And we're in that very time right now here in Matthew 22. This potting fits right into what God foresaw these leaders would do. He didn't force them to do it. He knew they would do it, so he providentially used it to fulfill his purposes. didn't make them do it, but he knew they would do it, so he used it. He used their plotting to propel the plot of the story. This is the providence of God, which is a whole big subject unto itself. But out of this little conclave, comes the final question to test him. They must have batted several things around in this meeting together, taking counsel on just how to deal with him. But we need to understand what they're trying to accomplish here. In verse 35, we're told that one of them, meaning a Pharisee, who was also a lawyer, and this word lawyer means a law expert. This is really the same as a scribe. The scribes were the ones who copied the law, were the authorities on the law. The scribes were the ones who really knew the law best and interpreted the law and taught the law. Normally, Matthew would use the word scribe. It's unusual for Matthew to say lawyer. I'm not sure why he says lawyer, but it may suggest that this guy was a cut above the average scribe. He was a little bit of a lawyer's lawyer, as it were. All the scribes were at least half lawyer and half theologian. They were sort of theological attorneys. 
And this may have been one who stood out as a cut above the rest from the scribes as a real expert. He is sent to ask a question on behalf of the rest of the Pharisees. So this is a mission-minded man. He is sent as an emissary. He's going on a direct task sent by the Pharisees who are filled with a venomous hatred. All they want to see is Jesus dead. But it seems that this particular man is a little more objective than the rest of them. If we compare the passage in Mark where he describes the same scene, the lawyer starts out thinking that Jesus has answered the previous two questions very well. He seems to be attracted to the wisdom of Jesus. And when Jesus answers this question, the lawyer responds by saying, you have said the truth. What you have said is exactly right. And Jesus in turn said to him, you're not far from the kingdom. So that's what we're dealing with here. While he's acting as an emissary for the Pharisees on his own terms, he seems to have more integrity than they do. While they're without any objectivity at all, at this point seeking only to eliminate Jesus, he at least has enough to come with somewhat of an open mind to hear an answer. He doesn't seem like he's quite as venomous as the rest, and maybe that's why he was the one willing to go. Maybe that's why he was the one selected. So he can sort of kill two birds with one stone here. He can play out his role as a Pharisee, and he can also have direct contact and get a direct answer for himself from this fascinating man that might help him in his own thinking. Nevertheless, we are told in verse 35 that he asked a question to test him. So he's not totally honest. It's not a completely sincere question just out of his own heart. He's more objective than the others, but not totally. So he comes and puts the Lord to the test. And obviously they want him to fail this test. They want him to be discredited. They want him to lose his popularity. So what's this question about? Before we look at the question itself, we want to see what's it about. And we do that by easing into it, asking the question among ourselves, who was the number one hero in Judaism? Who was the number one hero in Judaism? And the answer is obviously Moses. Moses, who was unique and unlike everybody else. Moses, who spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That set him apart from everybody else. Moses, who when God searched the world, For a man to whom he could give his law was chosen as the recipient of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Moses, the priority writer who penned the first five books of the Old Testament. It was Moses who was their great hero. A second century rabbi actually said that God calls Moses faithful in all his house and thereby ranks him higher than the ministering angels themselves. Many of the Jews believed that Moses was in a category even above angelic hosts. Moses was the greatest one. In the next chapter, chapter 23, Jesus said that the scribes and Pharisees sit where? They sit in Moses' seat. That was the seat of ultimate authority. Moses had led them out of Egyptian slavery and had given them the law of God. He was their greatest hero. And now the Jews believed that the teaching of Jesus attacked Moses' teaching. That's why Jesus made clear in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17, that I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Even when so far as to say that not one jot or one tittle shall in any case be removed from this law, the law of Moses. 
Jesus is very sensitive to the fact that he's going to be accused of attacking Moses and in some way diminishing the role of Moses. So he emphasized, I have not come to obviate the law of Moses. I have not come to remove even one little marking from it. But they believe that Jesus is a diminisher of Moses, that he has come to postulate something beyond Moses and above Moses and greater than Moses. They want him to say that. That's the intent of this question. They want him to say that. They want Jesus to affirm that he has a word that supersedes Moses so they can accuse him of being a heretic and an apostate who has departed from the faith delivered by the greatest of all authorities, Moses himself. If they can just get Jesus to say that, that he supersedes Mosaic authority, then he'll be viewed as a blasphemer. He will discredit himself. He will become unpopular with the people who revere Moses as greatest of all. So they want to put Jesus in a situation to attack Mosaic law. And they believe he will do that because they see his teaching as something beyond what Moses had taught. That really wasn't true as he reiterated to them that God's law had not been altered. Jesus in his encounters with these people was quick to point out. That God's law has not been altered. It's you yourselves who changed it with your own traditions. He makes that case in Matthew 15. He makes it in Mark chapter 7, as you well know. But their goal is to make him look like an apostate. Discredit him with the people by setting him against Moses and pushing him to a point where he articulates some law that's above Moses and then the people will turn against him. That's the approach. So we come to the question of the lawyer in verse 36. Master, he says, this word means teacher, and it was a bit of a flattery that they always seem to attach. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And it would be fair with the Greek original here to make this word great a comparative expression in this usage, which is the greatest commandment in the law. The Pharisees and others always has lots of discussions about this kind of stuff amongst themselves. They claimed that there were 613 separate laws. They had the number 613 because there were 613 separate letters in the Hebrew language, 613 separate letters in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. I don't understand the connection myself between the number of letters in the giving of the Ten Commandments and the number of laws that God had given. But that's the way they thought of it. It was a very strange theory that used to be known as rabbinic letterism. They had one law for every letter in the Decalogue as given in Exodus chapter 20. And then they divided that 613 into two separate parts. They said there are 248 affirmative laws, one for every part of the human body, which I also don't understand. And there are 365 negative laws, one for every day of the year, which I also don't understand. But the 365 and the 248 add up to the 613. And then they divided those 613 laws into light laws and heavy laws. The light laws were semi-optional, but the heavy laws were binding all the time. I think the thinking there was you can't possibly keep 613 commandments, so you've got to have a break somewhere. So they lightened some of them up and they got heavy on some of the others. In Matthew 23, we're reminded that they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne on men's shoulders. Those were the heavy laws. 
They were interested in what was heavy and what was light. So they had lots of debates amongst themselves about what was light, what was heavy, should we change this heavy one to a light one, and, and vice versa. They talked about these things for hours in riveted fascination. What was really important, what wasn't so important, and so forth. This was their approach. If Jesus is a man with a huge ego trying to establish himself as the Messiah, he's going to say something that supersedes Moses. He's going to set himself up as the authority. Something is going to come out of his mouth that we can use to prove that he's an apostate. So, what's the great law? Just give us one. The greatest law. And they figure he'll have to say something new, but it can't be something old, right? If he's got a new message, how can it be an old law? The Sadducees, as you know, accepted only the Pentateuch, so they really held Moses to be the great authority. The Pharisees accepted the Pentateuch and other writings as well, but Moses was still far the supreme one to them. So the issue is Moses here. If Jesus will just speak some unorthodox law. So the man comes to Jesus and says, give us the number one commandment. What is it? And the response of the Lord is given without batting an eye in verse 37. No hesitation. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. What an answer. And you're aware of where he got that answer. He's quoting Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. He did exactly the opposite of what they wanted him to do. They want him to supersede Moses. He quotes Moses. And not only does he quote Moses, but he quotes the most familiar thing Moses ever wrote in his life. The Shema. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. That was the most familiar scripture to all of those Jews. And it's still familiar today. You may have gone to a Jewish home and seen a mezuzah, a little box by the front door. It's a little box that usually has a star of David on it. And inside that little box is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Or you may have seen Orthodox Jews strapping phylacteries to their foreheads or on their arms. And inside the box on the head or the box on the arm is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Every Orthodox Jew... And every Jew at the time of Jesus, who was faithful to his religion, twice a day had to stop and recite this statement. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So Jesus is hitting them right at the heart of their own religion. And he's saying, I'm no apostate. I'm not coming to you with something that you don't already know about. He's affirming solidarity with Moses. And he speaks to them of a verse that is most familiar to all of them. I'm not here to tell you anything different than what Moses told you. The Hebrew word for love in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, the verb primarily refers to the love of the will, the love of intentions, the love of action, rather than the love of feeling or the love of emotion. In other words, it's the highest variety of love. It's not the love that you just feel, but it's the love of dedication the love of commitment, the love that says, this is right, this is noble, no matter what I feel. And of course, in the Greek here, in Matthew, the word is agapeo, and 
We're all very familiar with that expression. Agape, the root word is the love of intelligence, the love of purpose, the love of the will, as opposed to phileo, which is the love of emotion or affection, and also different from eros, which does not even appear in the New Testament at all, but which is the love of the physical animal senses. So this is the highest kind of love, the noblest, the purest, the self-sacrificial love, the rightest and the worthiest variety of love. The Lord says to them what they already know, that the number one thing is to love God with your whole being, your heart, your soul, and your mind. And that they're all called on to participate in this. And Mark, in his recording of this passage, indicates that the Lord also said the word strength in connection with this. Your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. I think the point here is that he's collecting together all the parts of a human being. He covers all the words. And there definitely is some overlap in these words. These are words that are used in different ways at different times in Scripture. But he's calling together all that a person is in their whole being. I don't think the point is to separate out every individual sense of every word that he uses here, although it would be possible to try to do that. But we we see these words here used in an overlapping sense that there are four channels for love to be perfectly balanced in. It's an intelligent love, it's a feeling love, it's a willing love, and it's a serving love. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it carries itself right out on how we act, how we behave in our physical strength. Our intellectual part, our emotional part, our volitional part, and our physical part all come together to love God, to love God with the total being, with all that we are. And notice that he doesn't push these things together. He doesn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. They're not pushed together. Rather, they are spread apart. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole soul and with your whole mind. As if he wants to push them to as wide a possible level as he can. To really, totally love God, that's the great commandment. God is not just looking for people to go through religious ritual. God is not just looking for people who on the outside can go through the motions. God seeks people, and this was true in the Old Testament as well, God seeks people who with their whole being love Him. When God loved us, He loved us with His whole being. He gave everything that He was and is and will be. He gave us Himself in death for our sin, and he who gave us his wholehearted love does not want our half-hearted love in return. He loved us enough to give his son, and we're to love him enough to give ourselves. He even said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends, and we're to lay down our life for him. As he demonstrated that here in his love, Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he gave us his son. And as he showed that love sometimes can happen even when there's not initial reciprocation. So we are to love God, not for what we can gain, but because it's right. Because it's right. We're to love God in a comprehensive way, as he has loved us in a comprehensive way, with every part of our being loving him. That's what God is seeking from Humanity. God wants more than just our believing. James 2.19 says that the demons believe and they tremble. Why aren't they redeemed? They believe. Though they believe, they don't love God. The redeemed love God. 
God demands that we love him with a perfect love, a love as wide as all our capabilities and capacities. Nobody will ever be right with God until his heart, soul, mind, and strength manifest love for God. And that's true no matter what kind of religious activity they engage in, no matter how much church they attend, no matter how many good things they do or how many sacrifices they offer or how many rules they keep. A Christian has a consuming love for God. All right, stand if you're able. Stretch out a little bit. Thank you, Rick. Sing number 241. 241. 